All right, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. Let's give our attention to God's word. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The Bible says that all men are like grass, and that all man's glory is like the flower of the field. And that grass withers and flowers fade away, but God's word stands forever. So let me pray for us before we look at it more. Heavenly Father, we do, as we do every week, we stop and we ask that you would be with us. Because we need, we need for you to be at work. Father, we have to confess that, that we need you to actively be at work so that we might be able to hear and understand your word. So that we might be able to hear and believe so that we might be able to feed on your word. Would you, do, would you do that? Would you be at work? Would you change us and grow us? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I had a really good, have, still have, really good friend of mine that ran track at uh, another SEC school. Uh, he didn't go to Ole Miss where I went. But, and we got to talking one day about, his, or about running in general. And about track and such. And he said, uh, he asked me, he said, have I ever told you the story 
about how I almost ran a, a sub four minute mile. And I said, no, wow, that's amazing. I would love to hear that story. Uh, and I said, how close were you to running a four minute or sub four minute mile? What was your final time? And he said, well, I don't actually remember. And so then he tells me the story. And, and the story goes, he said, basically, after the first lap, his coach let him know uh, he was feeling great. And his coach let him know that he is on pace to break a four-minute mile. He's leading the race. And but basically, you know, just, just keep steady, hang on. And so then after the second lap, um, he's still on pace to break four-minute mile. He's still leading the race. After the third lap, he said, I'm still on pace to break four minutes, and I'm still leading the race. And then with about 200 meters left to go in the race, which I'm still leading, he said, it felt like someone poured acid down the back of my legs, and they just stopped working immediately. And he said, when I finished, everyone clapped for me. Not cheered, clapped, as in, like, bless your heart, we're so proud of you for finishing. Because he finished dead last by a long shot. Um, It's a pretty painful story. Um, And I wonder, though, you've probably never felt like that on the track. I know I haven't. But have you ever felt like that in life, in a sense? Um, Have you ever felt like I'm running along really well in life? Like things are going well. I'm even, maybe I'm even doing well in this sort of race of life. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, you find yourself barely being able to keep going. Like you just, you're just not, you're almost not even able to put one foot in front of the other because of what life has thrown at you. And maybe particularly if you're a Christian, um, have you ever felt have you ever felt that way about living the Christian life? That things are going great, and then for whatever reason, something comes along or several things come along, and you, you just find it so hard to keep going. And what do you do? What do you do when you feel like that? Well, in our passage tonight, the author of Hebrews he compares the Christian life. To a race. And now granted, it's, it's really more sort of parallel to a marathon rather than a sprint. But he's in, in this passage, he's encouraging us and telling us how to keep going in those times. When times are hard, when we suffer, and we feel like I, I just can't keep going. This semester, if you've been with us, you know that we're, as we study through Hebrews, our theme is better than you can imagine. Because the author is writing to this group of Christians who grew up in the Jewish faith but had been converted to Christianity. But were undergoing some sort of persecution. And they were really tempted to go back to being uh, to their Jewish roots. To, to sort of bail on Jesus and go back. And uh, they're really struggling with the question of, is Jesus really worth it? What's so great about Jesus? And so all throughout Hebrews, the author's trying to tell them over and over, look, Jesus is way better than you can imagine. He's better than you can imagine. And, and he gives them all these different, uh, he's better than this, better than that. 
And we've really come to sort of the last section where he talks about how to endure in the Christian life. He said, Jesus is better and you need to stick with him. And and here's how to do that. Here's how you endure or how you keep running, to use his illustration. And so I want to see tonight, we're going to see four things from this passage about how to keep running. And the four things are these. Number one, uh, it's, it tells us that we need to get rid of stuff that slows us down. Secondly, that we need to stay focused. Thirdly, we need to have the right perspective as we run. And fourthly, we need to help each other as we run. All right, so first, we need to get rid of stuff that slows us down. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Um, like, Like I've said, almost everything about this passage centers around the illustration of a sporting event paralleling the Christian life to some aspect of sport. And uh, here in the beginning, you see this great cloud of witnesses, right? This is referring to what we talked about last week. All of the, uh, the saints that had come before these people and, and, and by us that had lived by faith, right? Abraham, Moses, Noah, all of those folks. And the picture is that they are having completed their race. They're now in the, in the stadium, in the arena, Uh, As spectators cheering on those that are finishing the race, the Christians then and that day and and even us now. Um, And and the author tells us that that if you're running the race, if you're running a race, really, if you're doing athletics of any kind, that you want to get rid of anything that's going to slow you down or hinder you from competing or running uh, for whatever it's worth in, in this day. Athletes would often compete in the nude. Uh, they, would, uh, they, they, would, they didn't want anything to encumber them, right? They would get rid of clothing and extra weight, those sorts of things. Um, and so the, the illustration makes sense, right? You want to get rid of anything that's going to slow you down. And now look, there's some debate uh, about whether the author's talking about two things here, two types of things, or just one. Whether he's talking about weights... And sin, or if the weights and the sin are the same thing, right? Make sense? And I lean, I don't think it really matters, but I lean towards the fact that he's talking about two different things. And so I want to look at them each separately. So let's take uh, sin first. The author says if you want to keep running, you want to endure in the Christian life, then you have to work to put off sin. Uh, sort of the picture is like you're running a race and, and if something gets wrapped around your feet, right, it, it's going to be really hard to keep running. It's tangled around you. And he's saying sin acts like that. And that we've, we've got to work. If you're a believer, you've got to work to, to get rid of sin. And now look, understand that this is, this is what the Bible calls sanctification, right? This is in the sanctification column, right? So in other words, this is not advice about how to, um, how to get right with God or how to become a Christian. Does that make sense? The author of Hebrews is not saying to get God to love you or to be a Christian, then you need to put, you know, put sin to death. He's speaking to people that are already Christians 
that are already forgiven. But, of course, sin is still at work. And he's saying, you have got to work to put sin to death. And so, look, what does that mean for us? At least one thing it means is that we've got to see sin for what it really is. And by that, what I mean is that sin is never something that just sort of exists in this little compartment in our lives. And it's, gonna, it's fine there, and it'll stay there, and, you know, things will continue just fine. Uh, that's not the picture that the author gives, but rather that sin is something that we have to get rid of because it doesn't just stay there. In other words, it necessarily will continue to grow and work its way out and trip you up. That's its inertia. So we've got to see that it can't just stay there and not hurt anything. So whatever it is, right, we, the Bible is calling us to be diligent about taking inventory in our lives and rooting out and actually working against whatever, it, whatever sin we see in our lives. That the, our sexual dysfunction, right, whatever that might look like, um, it's not just going to stay where it is. It's going to grow if we don't work against it. Our gossip, our anger, um, our academic uh, dishonesty, whatever those things are, we've got, to, we've got to work against them. We're called to get rid of it. Uh, but the second aspect of this, what he calls uh, the weights, right? These, these seem to be things that are not necessarily sinful, but that still slow you down in the Christian life. Um, yeah, the author seems to be saying, look, there are also things in life that even if they're not outright sin, you need to, you need to get rid of anything that's not helping you run the Christian race, so to speak. Uh, my dad told me this story, uh, a long, you know, this was probably 35 years ago. Um, he said he was playing golf with his dad, my granddad, who's long since passed away, but... Uh, he was playing golf with his dad one day, and uh, so my grand, this is when my granddad was getting into his el- you know, more elderly years, and they were getting towards the end of the round, and uh, they were walking, and my, my granddad was uh, evidently saying that he was, he was feeling tireder, you know, the, more tired than usual, um, and he, you know, he was in good shape, but it's like, I don't know what it is, and so my dad looks at him, and he, you know, he knows my granddad's tendencies, and he said, hey, look, come here. He said he looked at his pockets and he said, "What? What's in your? How many golf balls do you have in your pockets?" And he didn't want to talk about. It. He said, "Let's see. Pull, pull them out. Pull them out." And he said he pulled out like almost two dozen golf balls that he had just stuffed in his pockets. And I said, "Okay, look, that's probably not helping you, right? Toting around a few extra pounds of golf balls. Um, you get the idea, right? Like it, it's not wrong." It's not sinful, but it's not helping you, right? It's just slowing you down. Um, that's the kind of the idea here. So what is it for us, right? I think we need to take inventory if we want to run well and look at our lives, right? What are the things that, that may not, not necessarily be sin at all, but are still sort of slowing us down? And now look, there's, there's a ton of wisdom involved here, right? So don't, these are not like hard and fast things, but it very well might be that, that your involvement with social media 
is something that you need to get rid of or, or, or deal with, right? Handle differently because it's not wrong. It's not inherently wrong, but the way you relate to it, it's, it's slowing you down in your Christian life because it, for any number of reasons, but maybe because it, it makes you so anxious about whatever, or you compa- you're always comparing your life or whatever. Maybe you need, that's a weight you need to get rid of. Uh, maybe it's video games. Uh, you know, who, fill in the blank, right? But I think, I think you get the idea. Um, to keep running, we've got to get rid of stuff that slows us down. All right, secondly, the second thing I want you to see from this passage, and I think really is the main idea of this passage, is that if we want to keep running, we've got to stay focused. We've got to stay focused. Um, all right, but the question is, what, what, do we, uh, what are we supposed to be focused on? Look at verse 2. He tells us, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Right? If you want to run well, if you want to finish the race, then you've got to stay focused. Right? That, uh, I guess, illustration is all throughout sports. It's not hard to find one, right? Um, any sport that involves hitting a ball, you have got to stay focused, right? What, every coach from when you're knee high, what do they tell you? Keep your eye on the ball, right? Um, you've got to stay focused. If, uh, if you run, if you run track, uh, if you run with a football, whatever it is, they teach you don't look back, right, to see who's chasing you or how close they are. It's only going to slow you down. You've got to stay focused. If you shoot basketball, when you shoot the basketball, you're supposed to keep looking at the goal, not the ball, right? You've got to stay focused or we get off track. And so the author of Hebrews says, look, it's the same idea. Running the Christian life, you have got to keep your eyes and your mind and your heart on Jesus. Don't look away. Stay focused on Jesus. Um, he's the one who has made our way to God. He's the one, he's the perfecter of our faith. And if you want to endure through difficulty, keep focused on Jesus. Um, And the author says that Jesus himself endured terrible suffering on the cross. But we've got to stop and be very clear about something here. Because we could, you could really go wrong at this point. Um, if you about how to understand what he's saying, because you could hear him saying, like, look, if you're going through hard times and you know, how do you keep going? Look at Jesus. Jesus went through incredibly, uh, you know, incredible suffering. And he persevered. He still went through it. So do what he did. Right. He's your example. Um, and almost like he's saying, look, I'm sure whatever you're going through is hard. But come on, right? Like it doesn't stack up to what Jesus did, right? So let's just buckle up and, and follow, it, follow the example. And I want you to see that that is at best a half truth. And if, if you keep it there, it will totally screw you up, right? Yes, it's true that Jesus faced the worst suffering imaginable, but, but why did he face it? That's of the utmost importance. And the text tells us, it says that he faced it because of the joy that was set before him. In other words, Jesus knew what was in store for him. 
He knew that it was going to mean incredible physical suffering. He knew that it it meant that he was going to be separated from God the Father, which he has been unified with for eternity past. And he knew in some sense that he was going to bear the wrath of his Father, whatever that means. And yet he knew all of that, and yet basically he looked at that, And he knew what he was going to get if he did it. And he said, yes, I'll take it. It's worth it. That there was something that would bring him so much joy that he could look at all that and say, I'll do it. And what is that something else? And the very simple answer is that 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 joy that was set before him is me and you. That what made it all worth it to Jesus is to be with you because he loves you. It was the whole reason that he came, to bring about salvation that would reconcile us to him and and actually even us to each other. And we know that for lots of reasons, lots of different places, but right before he goes to the cross in John 15, uh, you can read about John 15 and 17, Jesus talks with his disciples a lot about his joy, which is what this passage says. And his joy, he's clear about how what he wants more than anything is for his followers to share with him his joy. About how um, he and the Father were in each other and how he wants us to be in with him. Because he loves us so much. Uh, one of the songs that we sing here at RUF, and I think we might have uh, sung it last week, um, is how deep the Father's love for us. You remember that one? Um, it's a great song, but there's one line in it, and it says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished, meaning the cross, right? It was my sin that held Jesus on the cross until it was accomplished. And now look, in, in one sense, sure, right? There's a real sense in which that's true. But to be completely accurate... Or I guess I'd say it this way. That's not completely accurate. It wasn't our sin that held Jesus to the cross. Because Jesus could have come down at any point. But what held him there was his love for you and for me. He wasn't captive to the sin. It was his choice. Because he loves us. And that's why we look to Jesus. Not primarily as an example, but, but as someone that loves us. Because we need, we need some sort of motivation to endure, right? Jesus' was us. And, and so what is it that's going to keep us motivated to, to put one foot in front of the other and continue through suffering in the Christian life? It's that. It's the fact that that Jesus loves you. And he loves you for free. He loves you in spite of all the in spite of all the junk in your life and all the junk in my life. And so we have to keep looking at him. And that's what's going to what's going to move us and motivate us. And look very quickly, I want to say a quick word about shame. Um, goodness, we've got to move fast on that. Um 
Yeah, because the passage mentions this, this it speaks about shame. And look, especially if the shame that you feel is one of the things that's making it hard for you to continue in the Christian life. I want you to see, I want you to see the beauty of this passage and how it talks about shame. And it says that Jesus, essentially says Jesus took on your shame. Right? It says he experienced it. He, he felt the shame and he hated it. He took it on for you. He hung naked and exposed on a cross. And so in two ways, he took on the two things. He took on the shame for me and you, the shame that we feel when we do wrong. Right? You know that shame that you feel when, when you've said, I'm not going to do that thing again. And maybe you resist for a while and you find yourself, you do it again. You know that bitter feeling that you get and you just, uh, just, you just feel worthless. I want you to think about this. Jesus had never felt any hint of that for eternity. He had never felt any hint of that feeling of bitterness. And then on the cross, he takes on the bitterness of that shame, the the sum total of all of his people's shame. He takes it on himself because he took our place as guilty of those things. But the second aspect of this is that he took our shame, the shame that we can feel when we don't do something wrong. But when, but when wrong is done to us. Um, sometimes when people sin against us, uh, when, when people abuse us, take advantage of us in whatever fashion, um, very often we can feel shame about that. And about something that's not our fault. But those things can, and and wrongly, right, we receive the wrong message, but they make us feel worthless. And I want you to see, right, if, if that's you, and that's all of us to some degree, I want you to see that Jesus took that shame on himself. He doesn't want you, that, that shame doesn't define you anymore. If you were... Maybe if you were sexually abused. And if you were, I, I am profoundly sorry. And if that's you and, and you struggle with the shame because the, the message that you received from that is, I'm not worth anything. I want you to begin to see, look, it's not easy. And we would love for you to talk to, talk to Olivia, talk to me. We'd love to talk to you about something like that. I want you to begin to see I want you to begin to see a savior that says let let me take that from you. You're worth so much that I want to take that from you. That's good news. We got to keep moving quick. Oh my goodness, so quickly. Um, thirdly, uh, we have to have the right perspective to keep running. Now this is not so much a sports metaphor at all. Um, but it's still incredibly helpful. The author says that uh, the only way we can endure is to have the right perspective on our suffering, or the difficulties in life that we face. Uh, and he basically says that you've got to see that when you're experiencing suffering, it's actually because God loves you. And look, I get it. 
If this is a new concept to you, this very well might bring up a ton of difficult questions. And so again, I would say, we would love to talk to you about it. Um, but he quotes from uh, Proverbs 5, uh, 5 to 6, when he talks about, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And, and uh, he basically gives us the illustration of, of the parent and child illustration, right? He says, look, um, you know how it goes with earthly moms and dads. Right? You all grew up and had parents that disciplined you. When you did wrong, um, you would get in trouble. And it, it stinks to get in trouble. It, doesn't, it feels like suffering. But it's actually for your good. Amy and I have, you know, but when you become a parent, you find yourself saying the things that you swore you would never say when you were a kid. Like, I would never tell my kid that. And they come right out. And you say things like, look, if, I didn't, if we didn't care about you, like we're not punishing you because we hate you. It's actually because we love you. If we didn't care about you, we wouldn't care about you. Care what you do. But we love you. We want you to grow up and know right from wrong. And I want you to see that in this metaphor, right? So he's saying, look, God does this. In a sense, God does the same thing. And I want you to see this not just. It's not just when we do wrong, right? Discipline comes. Um. There are times when discipline is, is enacted and it's not because you've done wrong, right? Um, uh, when was it? Over the summer, I guess, we got, uh, for one of the kids' birthdays, we got a, an Xbox at the house. And um, our, let's just say, our, especially our boys, they would play it nonstop. And so we've got to, uh, the, have they done anything wrong? No, but... We've got to enact some, employ some discipline, right? So we say like, all right, we're going to limit the time that you can play video games. And they don't like that, right? It feels like suffering or more like death if you, you know, if they could be reached for comment. And it's not because they've done wrong, but it's because we want to teach them, right? We want them to grow up with a good, healthy understanding of like, what's an appropriate amount to do these other things? It's not because... We're getting back at them or even necessarily they they haven't done anything wrong. And Hebrews is saying that we have to see our circumstances in life actually the same way. That when hard things come into our lives, they are always under the control of a sovereign God. And a sovereign God that loves us like a father, like a good parent. That, That... is willing to love us, willing to love us so much that to allow and maybe even bring hard things that may not make sense at the time. I promise, and you've experienced this growing up, right? it doesn't make sense sometimes. It just seems like parents are trying to kill your joy. And look, parents are sinful, sometimes they are. But you get it. It's for your good. But it hurts, and it might look like and look, we can, you can never pin it down and say, all right, this is exactly why God did this in my life. I get it. But at least we can begin to process it if we have the right perspective. So that when our, when our parents get divorced or when someone you love gets cancer or when there's not enough money to go around or when you get broken up with or someone takes advantage of you or you've got to switch majors and now you've wasted time and money seemingly, or you don't get in the fraternity or sorority that you want. Or you just can't seem to shake those thoughts that you keep having. Or whatever it is that seems to be at odds with the fact that God loves you. It's hard to put those two things together. 
This helps, gives us the, helps give us the right, pers- the right perspective. That maybe, just maybe, those are not evidences of God not loving us. But they're actually the opposite. And now look, hear me. This is huge. It does not mean that some of those things are not evil. And to be mourned over. Deeply. But just that they somehow, in God's infinite wisdom, in his infinite sovereignty, they are worked together to be instruments by which he loves you. Again, let's talk about those things sometime. Fourthly and finally, and very quickly, the last thing that I want you to see, that uh, the author wants us to see about how we endure in the Christian life is by helping each other. I look at verse, uh, this is sort of verse 12 through 17. Look, there's a bunch of things that we could talk about here and we're not going to get to most of them. But I want you to see that one of the main things he says is that if we're going to endure, we need each other. We have to help each other. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. What a beautiful picture. Um, He says, look, make sure that nobody else stops running. You got to help each other. Keep pointing each other to Jesus. Don't let your brothers and sisters stop. All right, uh, I'm, I'm going to get choked up and sort of cry my way through this illustration. It's okay, right? We're fine. Um, in the uh, 1992 Olympics, before you were born, uh, when I was entering high school, uh, and they were in Barcelona, and there was a, a British track star named Derek Redmond. Some of you might have seen this video. And he was running the 400 meter. And he was running well, And about halfway through, his hamstring snaps. And he he goes down to the ground just in a heap. And everybody else obviously, you know, continues going. And he lays there for a little bit. And then he tries to get up. And and he's just hobbling because he wants to finish. And then, then there's this sort of commotion in the stands. As this, as this, man, this. Just such a great story. As this man makes his way through the crowd and makes his way to the to the edge of the track, and the security guards, you can kind of see it. YouTube, it's awesome. Uh, security guards are kind of trying to keep this guy back, and he will not be deterred. And he lets them know, just as he pushes past them, that that's my son. And so, uh, Derek, the runner, has no idea what's going on. And from behind him, he feels someone come up and basically sort of scoop him up, right? Put his arm under his and and support him. He turns, he sees his dad, and he just starts bawling like I am. And his dad says, son, you don't have to do this. And he says, yes, I do. And his dad says, well, then we're going to do it together. And look, that's awesome, right? It's a beautiful picture. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. 
He's saying you have got to have each other. You can't do this by yourself. That you have got to have somebody, you've got to have lots of people with you that, that come around you and say, you're not going to do this by yourself. We all need that kind of help. We've got to have other people in our lives that, that come alongside us and say, hey, yeah, me too. Me too. Jesus, come on. Keep walking with me. Jesus. And that's why God gives us the church. That's why he gives us each other. And I hope that RUF can, can, be, a, can be an expression of that. Even, even here and now, I hope RUF can be that for each other. Because if we're going to finish the race, we've got to have each other. To keep each other focused on Jesus and his love for us. And that's, a, as always, an invitation. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would give us Jesus. That you would give us each other. And that you would love us in such a way. Father, would you, uh, would you grow us in that? Would you cause us to endure? And we ask in his name. Amen.